0: Father, this morning we are so glad just to come together as the body of Christ into your presence just to sing praise to you. And Lord, my prayer this morning is is so simple, but it's our prayer every single week. And that is, Lord, as a result of being here, as a result of being together, as a result of being able to sing these amazing truths about you, As a result of being able to look into your word that you have given us so we can know you, Lord, I pray we would all walk out of this room with a bigger faith, with a bigger view of who you are, and more love for you. Lord, we pray that you would use these times as we worship to transform our hearts. And God, we pray you would do this now because we believe that only you can do that work, So I pray as we study Jonah, as we study the book of Romans as well, Lord, you would use your word by your spirit to change us, literally change our hearts, change our minds in this moment. Lord, I pray you would help us to know in our gut, at the core of our being, that if we have faith in your son, Jesus, that we are truly your daughters, and your sons. That you have redeemed us and you are doing a work inside of us that you will be faithful to complete. Help us to believe that this morning, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, uh, we are continuing in our study of Jonah. We took a break last week when Nick preached for us, but two weeks ago when we were studying it, I mentioned to all of us how the scriptures teach us that God created us with a mind and with a heart. Our mind is where we reason, where we process information, where we study, we think, we we do all of those things, and our heart is where our emotions and our motivations are. Our heart is what takes the information that we have and kind of puts it into action. But one of the things that we observed two weeks ago was that there is, there's often a disconnect between our mind and our hearts. At least in my life, there's usually a big disconnect there. Our mind will tell us what we should do and our heart is just going to do what it wants to do. So it's possible to be completely convinced of something in your mind but your heart completely disregards it, right? So this is why we procrastinate. Your mind tells you this is what you should do, but your heart's gonna do what it's gonna do, right? This is how we rationalize stupid decisions. Our mind says this is what would be right, this is the wise decision to make, our heart is gonna do what it's gonna do, and then our heart will hijack our mind and make it reason or rationalize why we did what we did. Mind-heart disconnect, something I think we all experience and all struggle with. This is something that can be so frustrating to us, especially when we need to change. When we have a struggle or a habit in our life that we want to get away from, our minds can be convinced that we need to get away from that habit, or we need to create new, better habits, but changing our minds is a whole lot easier than changing our hearts. And I think we see this struggle in the book of Jonah. So if you've been tracking with our series, if we've been studying the book of Jonah, one thing to know about it is we haven't been going through the book of Jonah verse by verse because the book of Jonah is a whole story. So every week we've been looking at the entire story of Jonah and trying to learn what God is teaching us from this entire story narrative. And so we've been doing this over the weeks. And so we all know if you've been tracking with the series that the book of Jonah opens with God coming to Jonah and telling him, "I need you to travel from Israel over to Nineveh, which is modern-day Iraq. So go east and we want, I want you to preach against the city of Nineveh." And at this point, Jonah's mind and his heart are completely in sync. Nineveh was known for being a dangerous and violent city, and Jonah did not want in his mind and in his heart any part of going to Nineveh to preach to that city. A good, thoroughbred Israelite had no business interacting with violent pagan Gentiles. At least that's what was in Jonah's heart in Jonah's head. So he decides to get on a ship, and he sails east, I mean, I'm sorry, west, on the opposite direction of Nineveh. And as he's sailing, God decides to make it clear to him that he wasn't kidding. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, so he sends a big storm to toss the boat around. And the sailors on the boat are doing everything they can to save this boat, but the storm is just too powerful. So the sailors start to appeal to their gods, little g, gods. Jonah was the only one on the boat who actually worshipped the one true God. And during the chaos, Jonah eventually lets the sailors know what is actually happening. We'll read that together. If you look at Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 9, look at what it says there. It says, Jonah answered the sailors on the boat, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the Lord. When you see Lord there, it's in all capital letters in your Bible because the Hebrew actually says Yahweh. I worship Yahweh, who, which is the name of the God of the Bible. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from Yahweh's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. Look at this, for I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Jonah knows he's the reason for the storm he feels that guilt and that shame for the predicament that he's gotten everyone on that boat in. And he tells them, it's because of me, I'm the one to blame that we're in this mess. It's my fault, toss me overboard. And I think we've all been in that place before and in the middle of a storm, in the middle of consequences that maybe we're experiencing for our actions and we know it's because of me. I'm the one to blame. I'm the one who messed up. So the sailors toss Jonah overboard, and just when Jonah believes it's gonna be the end, he gets swallowed up by a giant fish. And from inside the belly of this fish, Jonah prays this incredible prayer of repentance to God. I mean, this prayer is coming from that guilt and that shame that's in his gut that he feels For running away from the presence of God. Jonah wants to obey God. He understands at this point that he has disobeyed God. And he wants to repent. He wants to change. So look at this. In Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 7. This is towards the end of his prayer. Look at this. It says this. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer came to you to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols, they abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I mean, you can almost feel this. From this point forward, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to Yahweh. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. So Jonah disobeys God. He feels guilty for that disobedience. He repents. Now he's on his way in obedience to God. And so Jonah heads to Nineveh, preaches to Nineveh, and miraculously, all of Nineveh repents and turns to God. I mean, you would think that this would be an amazing experience for Jonah. God had told him to preach to Nineveh. He disobeyed, but God kind of redirected him through the storm and the fish back on his way to Nineveh. Jonah repents. He wants to obey God. God has shown him grace I mean, chapter 2, it's not an inauthentic chapter or a prayer that we see here. Jonah genuinely, genuinely repents before God. Chapter 3, he goes, he obeys, preaches. All of Nineveh gets saved. I mean, you would think this would be such an amazing experience that God, through his grace, has allowed you to see the fruit of your obedience. I mean, we've been in this place too, I think, right? You were straying away from God. You come to your senses, you repent, and you vow, God, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to live my life for you from this point forward. I'm not going to run away ever again. I mean, it's a genuine feeling inside of your heart. But look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. What happened? What, what happened to Jonah chapter two, verse nine, the end of his prayer? But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, Jonah's heart had all of a sudden reverted back to where it was in chapter 1. A hatred for the Ninevites, an irreverence for God. So had Jonah's heart actually changed in chapter 2? I mean, again, I think we can all relate with Jonah in this moment. Repenting to God, wanting to change, wanting to be a better person, resolved in my gut, I'm going to live differently. But that Resolve just doesn't last very long. You know, there's someone else who can relate with Jonah in our Bibles. And who writes about this, and that's the Apostle Paul. Believe it or not. If you go to Romans chapter 7, Paul laments the same struggle that we see Jonah struggling with. In this book, look at verses 15, chapter 7, verses 15 through the rest of the chapter. Paul gets a little wordy here, but I think we can all relate with what he's trying to say. He says, for I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Have you ever felt that way? I desire to do what's good, but my heart's just going to do what it's going to do. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul is saying there's this war waging inside of him, this war where there is a part of him that wants to honor God, wants to obey God, but there's another part of him that does not live that out. Why can't I do what I want to do and why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Why can't I change? What's going on inside of me? And if you look back to verse 20 in Romans 7, Paul says something interesting. It might have been confusing at first. He says, Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is sin that lives in me. Paul says that the disconnect between our minds and our hearts is due to sin. And I think most of us, when we think of sin, we think of an action or a behavior. All right sin is something that i did but later in romans in chapter 14 verse 23 paul says this paul says everything that is not from faith is sin so think of sin not as a behavior or an action but maybe the motivation underneath the action so anything that we do that is not from faith in god is sin, according to the word of God. And to help explain exactly what Paul means there, you know who I think we need to learn from, is Jonah. If you go back to Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, we're going to kind of go back and forth here. If we look back at his prayer of repentance, Jonah helps us with this. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. In other words, those who cherish worthless idols abandon God, abandon their faith in God. And You go, okay, well, what's an idol? Simply put, an idol is anything that we vainly put our hope in. Anything that we vainly put our hope in. And and the word for idol here in chapter two literally means empty vanity or vapor. Okay, so, so think of this. Think of the sailors that were on the boat with Jonah during the middle of that storm. The text says in chapter one, verse five, that the sailors were each crying out to their own gods to save them. Now, none of the sailors were worshipers of the one true God. So they were crying out to false gods, to idols who were worthless. They were worthless because they didn't exist. They weren't there. It was empty. They they have no power because they're not there. And so as Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says, these gods were empty vanity. They're vapor. You're crying out to nothing. So putting your hope in idols is vanity because idols can't do anything for you. I mean, who was it that calmed the storm for the sailors? It wasn't their false gods. It was the one true God. And then all the sailors became worshipers of that one true God. And so while Jonah is confessing this in in chapter 2, that cherishing uh, worthless idols is to abandon God, I think Jonah's repenting of himself doing this. I mean, look at the whole prayer. If you start at verse 7, just that that section, it says, As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. I remembered you. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols, it's like he's, he's starting to get this. Abandon you, God. Abandon your faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to Yahweh and no one else, nothing else, to the God of the Bible. So in Jonah's disobedience, he wasn't calling out to false gods, but Jonah was putting his hope in something other than God, something worthless. As he fled God, Jonah was doing something, Romans chapter 14, verse 23, that was not from faith in God. And so, when we talk about this disconnect between our minds and our hearts, when we struggle with doing the things that we do not want to do, the scriptures are showing us that there is a part of us that is operating off of faith in God. There's a part of us that wants to obey God, we believe his word, we wanna trust him. We believe that everything he tells us to do is for our joy. But there's another part of us that operates off of sin. It does things that are not from faith in God. In other words, it operates off of faith in idols. So here's the disconnect. Part of us operates off of faith in God and part of us operates off of faith in idols. And I believe that the reason that Jonah chapter 4, the last chapter of Jonah, records this weird encounter between Jonah and a plant. I'll explain it in a second, is to help us to understand what it's like to have faith in idols. Uh, If you remember, after Nineveh repents to God, Jonah gets angry. Because God decides to show mercy and not destroy the city. And so what Jonah does is he goes and he sits on the side of a hill. And he's all grumpy and he's pouting because God didn't destroy the city. And so he's sitting on this hill overlooking the city. And as Jonah is sitting there, God appoints a plant to grow and provide him shade. And the text tells us that Jonah was very pleased with this plant. But then the next morning, God commanded a worm to kill the plant. And on top of that, God commanded an easterly wind, so it raised the temperature, and he also commanded it to be a nice sunny day, so the sun was beating on his head, and it was hot. So Jonah was angry that the plant died. And then let's pick up the story. Chapter 4, verse 9. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and you did not make it grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their left from their right, as well as many animals. What's God doing here? I mean, it's like God is intentionally provoking Jonah, and that is what God is doing. He's intentionally provoking Jonah to teach us and to teach Jonah something about our hearts. Why is Jonah equally angry about God being merciful to the people that he hates and that there is no longer a plant to give him shade? Why does Jonah care about the life of a plant more than the life of 120,000 people? That's the big question in chapter 4. Jonah, you care more about the life of a plant than 120,000 people. And the answer is because both of these things are evidence that the idol Jonah has placed his faith in is not delivering. And it shows that even in the midst of Jonah's genuine repentance in chapter 2, his heart still struggled with hope in idols. Inside of Jonah is a game of ping pong going on. Back and forth. Faith in God, faith in idols. Faith in God, faith in idols. One moment he repents of his sin, and the next moment he's putting his hope back in his idols. And I think the idol that Jonah puts his hope in is control. When God called him to go preach to Nineveh, he fled. He was trying to control the situation. He knew God was merciful. He knew God was going to do a great work of salvation. So to control the situation, he goes in the opposite direction. What brings Jonah back? A very unusual way for God to tell Jonah, I'm in control. He commands the weather. He commands the great fish to swallow him. But even when Jonah does obey God and God does show mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah ping-pongs back to wanting to be in control again. But the reality is, is that this idol of control is worthless. It's empty vanity. It is a vapor. This idol can do nothing for Jonah. Jonah, and all of us for that matter, are in control of nothing. So in the plant episode, it's clear God controls the plant. God controls the wind. God controls the sun. Jonah does not. When Jonah had faith in God, he went with God's way. When Jonah has faith in his idol and doesn't get his way, he's left bitter, angry, frustrated, lonely, sitting on the side of a hill. Frustrated that his idol won't give him what he wants. Jonah goes back and forth, faith in God, faith in idol. I mean, You've been there before. I've been there before. H- how do we change? How do we make this genuine desire to follow God and lay down our idols consistent? As Paul says in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man that I am, who will... Rescue me from this body of death. And Paul gloriously answers his own question in verse 25 where he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's going to take all of chapter 8 in Romans to explain to us how God in Christ rescues us from this game of ping pong. Now Romans 8 is a ridiculously rich chapter that deserves about 20 sermons. So in the just few minutes that I have left, there's no way we're gonna tackle the whole thing. But I wanna bring some verses from Romans 8 to the surface to show you the argument that Paul is making. But, but in Romans 8, Paul gives us two things that are key to renouncing your faith in idols and finding your joy in Christ. Two things, this is how you do it. Here are the two. We have to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ and then we pick up the cross of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the cross and we pick up the cross. Paul does not begin Romans 8 by giving you a list of things to do. Rather, he begins with this in verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Isn't it interesting in chapter seven, I don't know if you picked up on this, Paul seems to divorce his identity from his life of sin in chapter seven. If you go back to verse 20, look at what he says. In chapter seven, he says, now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it. But it's sin that lives within me. Is Paul saying that we're not responsible for our sin? No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, Paul is helping us to understand that as a Christ follower, even though we may struggle with idols in our heart, they do not define who we are. In the same way that idols have zero ability to deliver what you're hoping they will deliver you, they also have zero ability to condemn you if God has decided to forgive you. I mean, go look at Romans 8, verses 3 to 13. You're actually gonna do that in your community groups this week. Just study that section because Paul is going to explain that God has saved us even though we struggle with sin and idols. He has saved us not because we have figured out how to change our hearts and win the game of ping pong, not because we figured out how to earn God's salvation, but he has saved us simply by his grace. By sending Jesus to become one of us who stands in our place, goes to the cross with the condemnation that we deserve on his back, pays our debts off, gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before God, holy, acceptable, not condemned. And Paul explains that when we place our faith in Jesus and receive that forgiveness from God, what, what God does is he puts his spirit inside of us. And so I want you to know this as a, as a follower of Christ. If, you're, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this ping-ponging that we experience, living by faith in God, living by faith in idols, is a war that is going on inside of us. And the way that Paul explains it is, it's living by the Spirit, by faith in God, or living by the flesh, faith in idols. But the reality is that even though we still struggle with living by the flesh, faith in idols, that does not define who we are. When I put my hope in idols, that is not me, but sin living inside of me. And so Paul picks up in verse 14, Romans 8, look at verse 14. He says, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ. And so if you want to root out the idols in your life and live more by the Spirit and less by the flesh, you first have to believe that no matter your struggle with idols, you are a child of God. If you trust in Jesus, you have God's Spirit in you. And look, you've got you to understand this. The ping-ponging in your life is evidence of God's Spirit in you. The struggle is evidence of God's grace. The fact that you desire to follow God and you want to repent. right? The storm and the fish in Jonah's life is God's grace on his child. The plant dying in Jonah's life is God's grace on his child. He is fighting for the trust and the faith of his children. And so I understand the frustration you feel and the desire to change. And not put your hope in idols anymore. That's a good and holy frustration. But don't believe the lie that you stand condemned before God if you trust in Christ. Because you don't stand condemned. You are God's child. So, so Paul reminds us. You, you've got to celebrate the cross. And understand how that has changed your identity. And remember who you are. But then. Paul reminds us. That living by the Spirit also means picking up the cross. Look at Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Look at this. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Turning away from idols, living by the Spirit and not by the flesh, in this life as we wait Jesus to return, means suffering. We read earlier from Mark chapter 8, verse 34 where Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, for Jonah to trust and obey God when he was called to go to Nineveh would mean that we would have to, he would have to pick up his cross. He would have to confess to his own prejudice and hatred toward the Ninevites and ask God to change his heart from hatred to love. He'd have to confront his true idol that if he were in control, he would destroy the Ninevites, not save them. See, Jonah was driven to repentance through the storm God sent, but the storm didn't change Jonah's heart. That's why God did all that stuff with the plant. And so so listen, to make that kind of confession, to have that kind of self-awareness, to be willing to accept how deep sin and idolatry actually is in our own hearts, that's suffering. It's experiencing the brokenness of this world and how that brokenness has reached its way even inside of us. This whole episode with Jonah wasn't about Jonah's salvation. Jonah belongs to God. It was about confronting his idolatry. And every one of us as children of God need to confront our idolatry. Listen, there is no such thing as following Jesus on this side of glory without suffering. The cross is not to be enjoyed. It is to be endured as we wait and taste for the glory that is to be revealed. And the longer you follow Jesus and the more you pick up that cross, you realize that having faith in God is what leads to life and joy, not faith in worthless idols. And so, listen, here's a question I need you to to think about. What in your life do you need to endure out of faith in God rather than indulge out of faith in your idols? What in your life do you need to endure out of faith in God instead of indulge out of faith in your idols? Where, Where do you need to change? What are you not willing to endure to see that change occur? Are you frustrated because in your mind you want so badly to never look at porn again, but your heart keeps dragging you back to it? And if you have faith in Christ, you need to understand that that struggle and that idolatry does not define you. The cross is triumphant in your life. You are a child of God, and this is important. God is not ashamed of you. But you need to pick up your cross. And that means suffering, which means you need to bring that struggle into the light and confess it to someone. That's hard. It means having the self-awareness and humility to know that you probably have an addiction and you need help. That's hard. It might mean you need to go a while without a smartphone and an internet connection. I mean, that all might sound radical, but it's for your joy. And I promise that idol will not deliver you anything. It's worthless. The suffering that God calls you to is his grace in your life because he wants to change your heart. Are you frustrated because in your mind you want to feast at God's word every single day, but your heart keeps you in bed or scrolling through your phone every time you sit down? I mean, if you have faith in Christ, that struggle and that idolatry does not define you. God doesn't revoke salvation for poor reading habits. But God's word is water to our thirsty souls and to deprive ourselves of it is to voluntarily allow our minds and our hearts to be more discipled and influenced by the world rather than him. And so you need to pick up your cross and it will mean suffering. Get accountability. Cancel some stuff in your schedule so you're not so busy. Meet with someone and read the Bible with them. Maybe admit that you don't know how to read it and ask for help. Understand that you might need to get rid of your smartphone. All of those things are difficult. It's it's why we call it suffering, but it's it's God's grace. Because listen, a heart that is discipled by the word of God is a heart at rest. And a heart that is discipled by this world is an anxious heart. All of this is true for small things in our lives. Uh, One thing I was thinking about this week I was convicted of it's how i rush through my bedtime through bedtime with my kids you know we have a routine where we read them a book sing them a song snuggle them before bed and lately i found myself rushing through it because the sooner i get my kids in bed the sooner my kids are in bed <laughs> right so <laughs> you get it right so instead of making the time meaningful where i can talk with them, read with them, sing with them, shepherd their heart in that moment, I rush and I get frustrated at them if they ask too many questions. Now, I'm not condemned under this, but because God's spirit is in me, there's conviction. That's God's grace. So even in this, there's a cross to bear, suffering to endure, even in this little thing. What is that? It's, it's denying myself, It's loving my kids more than myself. It's prioritizing them over my plans. It's confronting the fact that I value my leisure more than my time with them. There's a cross to bear, even in the small things. What do you need to endure out of faith in God instead of indulge out of faith in your idols? I mean, just the fact that you have an answer to that question in your heart It's God's grace in your life. It's his fatherly love for you and his desire for you to live in joy. There is no condemnation for you, but there is a cross to bear. That is the Christian life. Having a good marriage will mean you will have to suffer and bear a cross, and it will lead to a joyful marriage. Evangelizing your neighbors will mean you will have to suffer and bear a cross. And man, will that be joyful when you see one of them get baptized. Being generous with the money that God has entrusted to you will mean that you will have to suffer and bear a cross. And how joyful it will be to see your money go towards God's kingdom versus just things for you. Loving your neighbor will mean you'll have to suffer, disrupt your plans, go out of your way, and bear a cross. But listen, all of this is for your joy. Yes, there is suffering in confronting our idols, but would you rather be Jonah celebrating in the middle of Nineveh with 120,000 new brothers and sisters as they celebrate repentance and salvation, or would you rather be Jonah on the side of the hill angry because his idols didn't come through for him? Which one? Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Let me pray for us. Father, in this moment, in this time, I I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would bring gracious conviction into our hearts. As we think about that question, what do I need to endure out of faith in you, God, instead of indulge out of faith in my idols? Would you help us to answer that question? Would you help us to have the humility to admit it, to recognize it, to get on our knees before you and and ask for your help. And Lord, I pray that as we seek to follow you, Lord, that we would never get the cross confused. We don't pick up the cross to impress you so that maybe one day you will apply its effects to us. No, Lord, by your grace, you have saved us in and through Jesus and what he did on the cross. And now, as a loving father, you are shepherding us towards holiness because, Lord, you designed us and it is for our joy. Help us to believe that, that how you have called us to live, it's for our joy. We love you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would give all of ourselves to you. Be glorified now as we continue to worship you in song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.